You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. And welcome to Modern Myth with me, Tristan, the Anarchaeologist, uh, on the Archaeology Podcast Network. In today's episode, I'm speaking with Dr. Murray Cook, who's the archaeologist for Stirling Council. He has written many books, journals, articles, and other things all about the history uh, happening in Stirling. And I think it's a good idea to now talk about, you know, what's kind of going on in the central, the most central city in Scotland. Now, Stirling's quite small. How, how best would you describe Stirling as a place uh, to somebody who's never been there? Well, um, Stirling, yeah, thanks for that and thanks for the invitation. Um, Stirling is tiny. Um, there are towns bigger than uh, than Stirling in uh, in Scotland. Um, I mean, in, in terms of a British city, it's tiny. In terms of a global city, it's it's absolutely small. Um, it was a place that had a, a great historic significance. Its city status was granted quite recently by uh, the Queen, so it's a kind of it's a it's an indication of its status, its location, its history, um, as opposed to its its size. And and I live uh, very close to the city centre, um, and I can walk. 10 minutes into the city centre and then 10 minutes in the other direction, I can hit the countryside. So, uh, you know, 40 minutes might see you from one end to the other uh, of the city boundaries. So so absolutely small. A lovely place, though, um, uh, full of history and of uh, great significance to, um, to Scotland's uh, identity and history. And I think that's that's definitely something that we are going to touch on later because that's actually very much tying into some of the the, the books that you're written and uh, books that are about to come out. Um, but I want to actually just focus on like why did why did you end up in Stirling? You know what drew you to Stirling? I, I don't think it was the city status being small. I think there was something more. So what can you tell me about that? Well, well from a from a personal perspective, it was simply that there was a job available um 10 years ago uh, <laughs> sounds like archaeology yeah over, doesn't it? no 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 i mean i'd worked i'd worked in aoc for 13 years um i got made redundant in in the crash tried a couple of years in lancaster um and then uh, this job came up and i thought a good opportunity to get back to scotland and um a change i, I mean i'd been doing commercial stuff and this, of course, is the other side of the fence. This is setting those planning conditions rather than meeting them. So uh, gave it a go and um, have, have never looked back. Why did you do, why did you want to do archaeology anyway? Like, you, don't you know that the conditions are terrible, the pay is awful, and nobody actually knows what you do? I mean, it, it, they're, they're, oh, sorry, this is the internal <laughs> internal information that nobody knows about until they <laughs> until they're about two years in, and then they finally discover it. Yeah. Well, again, that, that, that's probably a product of my age. Um, I went to uni in the early 90s. Um, I, I got a grant. Uh, I, only a small proportion of the population went to university. At the time, the idea was simply get a degree. Once you had a degree, 
you could do whatever you wanted to do. I, and literally the ground changed under my feet um, as the first member of my family to go to university. So archaeology sounded fun, uh, but I didn't really know what to do afterwards, fell into archaeology. And uh, yeah, I was I was one of those lucky, lucky few that had a degree at the start of the 90s boom um, and, and obviously rode that from um, subcontractor to uh, commercial director at AOC. And, you know, for 13 years, um, there was a lot of fun. There was a lot of pressure. Uh, commercial archaeology got harder and harder and harder, I think. Uh, I don't envy anybody that's that's still in it. it uh, but if you have fun, uh, if you can have fun in archaeology, I think it's the best job in the world, you know, but it, it's it's finding where you can have fun. I mean, I mean, for me, for me personally, my journey was very, very mixed. I, I, I kind of like I came into university doing a science degree and I left with an archaeology degree. That's not a shade on archaeology, by the way. It was chemistry I came in with. But um, I, I did change, but I actually changed because I actually find archaeological theory very interesting. That actually was the, the thing that changed me. Um, I'm wondering in terms of archaeology um, at the moment, what what parts of archaeology really interest you like what is the kind of the thing about archaeology that's just like like other people they like these kind of time zones they like this kind of like oh i like these kind of artifacts what's in it for you that really like fires you up well it's 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 discovery um it's the um it's the simple process of discovery you put a spade in the ground you find something that, that no one's seen for a thousand years two thousand years uh, you know that that's bro that's brilliant in and of itself. If you keep doing it and you end up with you know one site after another after another, you you end up you can rewrite history or prehistory. Um, every day is different. Um, I I think it's I think being outside is is fantastic. Um, archaeology also um, I, and certainly the type of archaeology I've started to do, uh, and, and I should say that within the kind of council role. I spend a lot of my time, my free time, uh, and my own time, if, if there are people listening, actually researching archaeology, digging sites, digging nice sites, um, and actually being outside on a nice site with people that want to be there when there are no timetabling pressures. If, if we want to take a day, if we want to take a year, if we want to take five years, it doesn't matter. As long as you know we write it up, we do the post-ex, cover all our costs, but I do as much or as little, and everybody wants to be there. So everybody is having a good time. And if you're having a good time and everybody around you is having a good time, that's just that's a recipe for a, a long, happy life, as, as far as I can tell. And so you've um, you've been doing these – I mean, are they kind of like – what are the kind of people that come to these uh, digs that you do? I'm assuming it's not just you by yourself. Um, you know, who, who do you have the, that come – well, I do, I do two different, broadly two different types of digs. I, over the summer, uh, July and August, I do kind of uh, fee-paying field schools. And these get, uh, you know, students through to uh, kind of mature students, uh, people on holiday, people that want to dig, people that want to come back to the profession, people that want to try a day on a dig um, and see what it's like. Um, but then the rest of the year, in Stirling specifically, um, I, I do I do a mixture of things. I have um, a kind of 
ad hoc relationship with a number of students. They, they do placements with me. Um, we, we do a mixture of data entry, learning the planning system. And then every now and again, a weekend, a long weekend, we'll, we'll dig a site. So I, I, I kind of teach them the basics of how to dig, um, how to write up, what, what's expected. And it's just, it's local volunteers. Um, so people that live in Stirling or within a few miles of Stirling. And you know, I have a, an email list of upwards of a thousand names. Various people come along. Sometimes they come for a day. Sometimes they keep coming back. Uh, and you build your team on that. We're not doing complicated things, small scale keyhole uh, targeted at um, the major stratigraphic blocks, trying to get dating evidence. So, yeah, very good. All good fun. Um, yeah, I'm quite intrigued. Um, in some of your, you, you know, you're quite you're quite active on social media on the uh, Sterling Archaeology Facebook page, and I'm just wondering yeah. what you know. Like, I'll be honest here. Um, a lot of people in archaeology and heritage are not very au fait with uh, the most modern of technologies. I think uh, some people have managed the blog. Obviously, we at the Archaeology Podcast Network have taken over the airwaves. But uh, I think generally, there's not really... Um, there's, there's some really good examples of stuff like the Keith Nash Brock project. Uh, but what kind of like, what made you say, right, I need to make a Facebook page about this and I need to maintain it? Like, what were the ideas going uh, behind that? Well, I, I should say I'm I'm not at all media savvy. I, I don't I don't tweet and I don't have Instagram. Um, I mean, Facebook it it's it's easy. You know, you take a picture of something, you put a little bit of text, you can put a you put a link to a document. People are interested. Um, I mean, I suppose there is a there is a very much an idealistic. Um, position for me I, i'm a i'm a public servant i'm employed by the by the council by uh, local taxpayers uh to promote and protect their past so you know our archaeology that's a that's a hard word that's a hard word to spell it's a hard word to pronounce and and there's a definite uh, kind of feeling or i definitely have a feeling that it's that for most people they might say that archaeology is not for them um it's it's just it's something that um yeah our archaeology is not for them so it's, it's something tricky it's um something that um is a is hard to gain it's physically hard it's intellectually hard so the facebook seems to me a way of of promoting um everything that's going on um of actually demonstrating to um, uh, demonstrating to the public what archaeology is how much we can learn about the past how why archaeology is important um, if we want archaeology to be important we have to have the public on side and if the public's on for the public to be on side they have to understand why it's so wonderful you know, why is archaeology great why is sterling brilliant how else do you do that other than show them, show them the evidence? I'm just wondering, I've noticed on some of the videos, you talk about a secret location that you're digging up. So 
I, 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 I'm assuming it's <laughs> yes. not just because you're 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 living the kind of like um, James Bond lifestyle. Um, I'm assuming there's some difficulty um, with that because of the limitations and the laws that you have to abide by. Why are things? Sorry, all the limitations and laws that you have to abide by. What is that secretive like thing about? Why is it secretive? Well, I mean, obviously, in in Scotland, the the, the right to roam or the, the you know responsible access means that you can go anywhere. Um, the the difficulty comes when you find that access to a particular location is actually hard, simply because of its nature. Where do you park? Um, where do you park? How do you get there? And how do you ensure that your research doesn't interrupt the the kind of day-to-day activities of a farm. So, uh, you know, a a lot of what we do, a lot of what archaeologists do, certainly a lot of what I do is digging with people's permission. It's not a development issue uh, where they have to clear the land in order for to build houses. These sites that I tend to dig, they're still there. They're on a farm. They're on an active farm. Uh, The farmer has to be there. So in this particular case, the farmer is uh, access is tricky, so it's <laughs> it's in a remote location. It's a ten, it's a five minute drive up a very bumpy farm track. It's then a half hour walk from the farm track. Um, so the farmer's just in this particular case, which I should say is is a, a quern quarry with rock art and probably a Neolithic polished stone axe sharpening or grinding points. The farmer just doesn't want lots of people on his farm attracted by the uh, interest. So he's just he's just concerned that if hordes of people try to gain access to his land, his farming operations, his business, his livelihood would be interrupted, uh, and and that's perfectly reasonable. Um, I mean, the site is is anybody can get to the site, but you would have to park something like um, an hour's walk away. Uh, in order to to simply get there, you know, in in one of the towns close by, and then walk in, um, there's just just no free parking, um, so very tricky. So that's all that is. It's really just it's a courtesy to the farmer, who didn't want the location revealed, and because he didn't want to be overwhelmed by um, by visitors, uh, um, you know, I I don't think it's an unreasonable request. I mean, we are parking in their farm. <laughs> in between their buildings and getting in the way of their farming equipment, um, and and there's no way we could do the project unless we could drive and park on a park on the farm. Yeah, totally. I'm just. Uh, th- th- I mean, that is that is quite interesting. And obviously, um, you've been able to keep this up um, over this year. I ass- I'm assuming from the uh, Facebook posts. What's it like running a dig during a pandemic? Um. It's it's interesting. Um, obviously, the fir- the first thing to note is that um, it's all legal. It's all above board. That there's there's obviously an ethical question, so we have to be very careful. So you know what, what the tiers are working within the council area, not travelling beyond um, face masks, lots of hand washing, physical distancing. Um, it's actually. 
It wasn't bad. Um, one one dig we had to completely cancel because uh, we all stayed away. Um, so these digs, everybody is travelling from their own home to a place of work, in effect, uh, to a, a location. And they are we're maintaining two metres distance all the time. Uh, lots of hand washing. I, I mean, we never actually touch each other. We're outside. Um, obviously, of course, I, I, you know, I, I can hear people suggesting, uh, is this the sort of thing that should carry on? Why would we put anybody at risk? And and what I'm doing with the digs, I'm I'm taking the view that these are physical activity in much the same way as uh, an organised walk. So uh, rambling can carry on up to groups of 30 through the pandemic. So we're just doing the same thing. People are going for a walk. We're having a dig. We're socially distancing on the dig. One of the one of the interesting things is actually easier for me is I didn't have to make any coffee. Uh, no, <laughs> normally I bring a big flask of uh, mm. of hot water and, and, and I provide teas and coffees. We didn't do any of that because obviously we didn't want to... Um, uh, share uh, things that people might have been handling. So it was it presented challenges, but just as commercial archaeology carried on, so um, research archaeology could carry on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Totally, totally. Well, uh, we're going to have learn a little bit more about kind of Stern's history and directly what kind of led to you um, writing about Sterling and uh, after this short break. And we're back. You're listening to Modern Myth. I have currently, I'm currently speaking to Dr. Murray Cook about archaeology and heritage in Stirling. So, so you have a book that's already out, which is called Digging into Stirling's Past. Uh, have I got that title correct? I think that did. Yes, yes. So, um, can you tell me a little bit about that book? Well, yes. Um, I mean, this was just. It was going back to those principles. Um, Stirling is a fabulous place. Um, prehistory is excellent. There were lots of books. There are lots of books written about Stirling. But it seemed to me they always um, missed the archaeology. They were very good on the kind of the last 500 years. They were very good going back to the Wars of Independence. So at a push, the last 1,000 years was great. But they didn't really cover anything below that. And I just thought, um, uh, the thing about Stirling is that you can walk within 15 minutes from a medieval castle, you know, one of the finest Renaissance palaces in Europe, to a place where Bonnie Prince Charlie stood in 1746, to a place where Cromwell stood or Cromwell's troops stood in a siege, to a... Uh, a fort, a vitrified fort, to a medieval battlefield, to uh, Scotland's best preserved city walls. And, and that list, those, those lines of superlatives just keep going on and on and on. So the book was an attempt to say, gee whiz, all this is just here in Stirling. All of it is literally under your feet, just round the corner, here's how you find it and here's what it means and i'm just interested um you actually now uh have a book coming out um again about sterling so why do you keep writing 
the same book over and over again. <laughs> well, um, it, it's not the same book. So um, what had happened was um, I actually have probably six different books, all at differing stages of, of completion on differing su- subjects about Sterling. So the starting point is uh, that I believe that Sterling is the most important strategic location in Scottish history. Anybody who wishes to invade or resist invasion does it at Stirling. So every army from Agricola all the way through to Bonnie Prince Charlie and uh, and Cumberland has to come through Stirling. So you know you have got Romans, Picts, different types of Celts. You've got Vikings. You've got Angles. You've got um, Scots. You've got Britons. You've got the Wars of Independence. You've got the various medieval campaigns, the rough wooing. Um, you go through the Jacobites. You end up um, with a role, an almost incredible role in the empire where Stirling is this tiny, tiny microcosm of the British Empire because it reinvents itself as a commuter town from Glasgow in the empire. And simultaneously, while that is um, uh, that's happening, all that money from Glasgow merchants, it's a military barracks. So the cemeteries, the houses are all full of people who are entwined in that much bigger world. And then you move forward because of the, the kind of central connections, because of the transport links. Um, the only way north-south was through Stirling. Um, you know, so prior to the building of the fourth uh, rail bridge, Everything went through Stirling. So you have these massive communication network, which then, and the massive military base, means that you end up with things like the Atlantic Wall replica, which is uh, was used to help um, help prepare the ground for D-Day, you know, which is the largest amphibious invasion in the history of the world, possibly one of the most important events in world history, you know, the end of the Nazis. Um, so all of that is there, all of the this incredible history, this incredible network of connections. So um, there are endless stories to be told about Sterling, endless accounts. Um, I think as well, um, if, if I could blow my own trumpet, I, I, there are certainly people who know far more about lots of things. I, I do think I'm quite good at communicating these things i think i can say them in uh, in a way that isn't intimidating that's quite fun so it's a way of of actually going back to taxpayers going back to members of the public communicating to them why sterling is so significant and why sterling um deserves to be visited again and again and again and and why it is so central to our identity and our history so I'm trying to think about the place that this has in terms of um, public heritage and understanding. I mean, my view is that, unfortunately, the public have been shown the menu of history and um, everybody orders what they're used to, right? So the, the person comes and orders a chicken korma every single time because they know what it tastes like and they like the taste. Now, I feel like a lot of archaeology and a lot of heritage and history is kind of off the menu. You know, it's an off-menu item. 
but it could be just as tasty to a lot of these people. So I'm wondering, what is your opinion about people's knowledge of Scottish heritage? Um, and what do you see as the kind of the, the, what are the holds in understanding? What are the things that might be missing? I, well, the, the, I mean, I, I tend, I tend to agree with you. I, I think there is a, there is a difficulty in that if you ask people about their past, um, certainly in, in central Scotland, um, the things that come to the fore are World War II and mining. Um, and these are very visceral, important things that, that connect people to their local community. But there is, there is a poverty of knowledge about that deeper past, about just the, you know, the, the fact that there, there have been people living in these locations for 10,000 years. So I think that um, we end up in a, in a self-fulfilling uh, prophecy that we tell people the stories that they know because they know those stories. So we tell them the stories that they know uh, and it, and it goes round and round in circles. Um, I, it's somewhere like Sterling. There is always a difficulty. There is no one story here, um, I, and and actually, the, the, there is, uh, I, and hence why there is no one book. Um, there are stories about Romans. There are stories about Vikings. There are stories about the Picts. There are stories about uh, Robert the Bruce, about William Wallace, about the world's oldest football, about the world's oldest curling stone, about the rough wooing, about empire, about slavery about um, you know, gl the global dominance of the British state uh, through the 19th century. And actually, how to unpick those, how to navigate, um, how to navigate a, a general member of the public, what are they interested in, what are they not interested in, what should they be interested in, how to be entertaining and educating without being patronising, without deciding that this is correct history and this is not how, how do we deal with um there's a there's a chap i've been reading about his his father is a covenanting minister he's, he's blackadder um I, I don't know if that's the inspiration for the program his dad dies in in jail in uh, the bass in the bass rock so he's an enemy of the state fighting for personal freedom um, that sounds very good, but of course that personal freedom is is white and Protestant. Um, his son is a slave owner. His son is a virulent anti-Jacobite, stops um, Jacobite troops uh, during the 1715 and, and actually becomes the embodiment of uh, the establishment. But he's, as I say, he's a slave owner. So you know his his views on freedom were celebrated, um, and as the state shifts around the you know the seventeenth eighteenth century from you know the glorious revolution, and and we and Catholicism Protestantism battle with each other that per, the the right for personal freedom, the right for uh, religious expression, clashes with empire clashes with personal freedom for, for slaves. I mean, the, the, these are very complicated issues. We're, we're struggling with them today. Um, you know, I, and actually the, the only way to deal with any of these things for me, I, I think, is, is to actually 
learn about them, digest them, and and see what we think after a period of reflection. Um, you know that some horrific things were undertaken, and and just as we are transitioning from slavery, uh, we embraced child labour through the the 18th century, and and there are accounts of seven year old miners um, working around Stirling, and and that wealth is built. Uh, that builds Stirling, builds Glasgow, Edinburgh, all these places. Uh, you know, what do we see when we look at look at Victorian um, the Victorian suburbs of every Scottish city? Where does that money come from, uh, and and what do we think about it? And 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 that past is confronts us um, if we choose to to kind of look into a bit deeper. I think I think you're getting incredibly woke here, Murray. Um I think this is this is just a politically correct <laughs> history uh ruining ruining the real history, you know? But it, this is this is the interesting part I think is I think we I think out of the three things that you talked about, you know, learning about something, understanding it and then reflecting on it. I think we're possibly in the public eye we're kind of missing on the two last two of those things. Um and I think I think you've highlighted really, really effectively because the end of slavery, you know, didn't wasn't wasn't suddenly a utopia, um, because even even the, the the year that slavery was ended, it, you know, that took a while to kind of like you know spread out. And I think it's really interesting because I I have this feeling as a non-Scot that Scottish history is sometimes a, there's a little bit of whitewashing going on uh, especially when it comes to empire and I find it really interesting how uh, people relate to that history and that heritage do you think that people in general in Scotland from who you've talked to do you think that there's do you think that people are getting better at understanding their history or do you feel that there's more that heritage professionals can do you know even if heritage professionals are the one to do it well i i think we can all we can always learn more about our past um i and and certainly i wouldn't um i wouldn't wish to castigate the empire too much the ultimately what happens with the empire is that we were just better at doing nasty things than anybody than all the other nasty people um the the first the first uh, written record of Stirling, which dates back to the 12th century, um, includes uh, a reference to serfs um, and, and serfs being transferred as property to uh, from the king or by the king to um, endow a church. Now, are serfs slaves? Um, and and there is there is a question of precisely the legal status of a serf, but our, our, our very earliest written record um, contains. Uh, you know, the unfree. Um, so all of this is extremely complicated. There are no black and white issues. Um, you know, the um, Robert the Bruce, great champion of, of Scottish freedom, clearly adjudicated on law cases involving serfs. Um, William Wallace is is an educa- a brilliant man, an absolutely incredible man. Um, how more successful might he have been if he was a member of the aristocracy? Was support withheld from him by the aristocracy because he wasn't of the right sort? Certainly, 
without going into too much detail, the Peace Treaty of 1304 specifically excludes Wallace and a handful of others. Um, we know by this point Robert the Bruce is is back, um, is back in Edward the First's good terms. He's he's surrendered. We know that the leader of the Scottish Resistance, the Red Common, who Bruce will eventually kill uh, under a flag of truce on holy ground. Um, we know that he signed the treaty. He, th- th- these two guys are quite happy to serve up Wallace on a plate. Wallace's capture is made a specific term of the of the peace treaty. Uh, the the powerful are the powerful, uh, and and they will always um, exploit. They always have exploited the weaker. Um, it just it gets extremely unpleasant in the the seventeenth and eighteenth century when we do that on the basis of skin colour. Um, so the, the, pa- the past is horrible. I mean, the past is absolutely horrible. Yes, we there are interesting things to learn about. There are interesting buildings. You know, the, the, recovering the remains of these lost societies, these lost generations, um, you know, uh, the, the archaeological evidence is, is a kind of very poor, mute substitute to the, the, the living, breathing history or the, the, the kind of dialogue or the accounts, these individuals, but it, it's what we have, and, and it's I think it's all the more precious for it. Um, so, yeah, I think we all have to do more. I think heritage professional, I th- I personally, I think if anybody is lucky enough to be employed as, as a heritage professor, professional, um, they have an obligation to sell, to sell themselves, to kind of... Um, proselytize for the profession to make everybody realize how important it is to recover this past so that what we do with it, of course, do we learn from it? Do we acknowledge it? Um, There's a question of we have to learn from history in order not to repeat previous mistakes, clearly. Um, Archaeology is fun, but it's it's not the NHS, it's not the police. It's it is it is one of the bells and whistles of a civilized society. Um, so we have to fight to ensure that we remain civilized. To fight to ensure that people recognize the importance of the past, the importance of learning from the past, the importance of archaeology. What do you think? Um, one takeaway is from people who have that kind of direct connection with archaeology. I'm kind of getting at the the idea that, you know, you were saying about the, the kind of people come on your digs are usually, you know, students or those interested in heritage. What do you think the, like, I, I personally, I very much, I personally very much enjoyed my time when I very briefly worked as a commercial archaeologist for a very brief amount of time. And I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed the, the wet, windy weather, uh, the digging stuff up, the getting absolutely muddy uh, it was it was really it was really enjoyable and i'm kind of wondering like what do you see as the 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 physical the the benefit that people have uh from directly interacting with the past well i i mean i i think that i think the um the benefits are manifold uh, you're getting outside so you know at the moment vitamin d is in short abundance in Scotland. So getting outside, getting that sun on your skin, meeting people, meeting new people, meeting people who want to be there 
who are sharing a common aim, you know, that sense of uh, camaraderie, of esprit de corps. Uh, these are brilliant things. Um, learning a new skill, being physically active, getting dirty. There's the, uh, is there some kind of benefit from being regularly exposed to soil as a boost to your immune system? Um, I'm, I'm sure I'm healthier for having <laughs> been knee-deep in mud and dirt uh, for, for years. I, I think, you know, the, the idea that citizens are contributing to the, the understanding of their past. I mean, um, if we collaborate, if we collaborate in one area, do we encourage collaboration in another area? Is the principle of people actively taking um, uh, taking control of research, of actually getting so involved, of learning new skills. So, I mean, for me, uh, I, you know, that commercial side, that if we want to actually learn about the past, we have to dig it. And we can wait for research grants, we can apply for the funds, we can do all of those things, or we can find four or five like-minded individuals and go out and dig it. Um, I mean, obviously, everything has to be done correctly. You have to have the permissions. You have to have the money to publish the remains. You have to research them properly. But if we actually empower our fellow citizens to engage in researching the past, how much richer do we become as a society? How much richer does the the record of the past become? Um, All of these things are... um, are just there. They're just there for the taking. We have, um, I mean, Scotland, Britain has a very open uh, system, a very liberal system with regards permission to dig on archaeological sites. Anybody can do it. Um, And yeah, we want to pay attention to the ethics. We want to make sure it's done. But the fact is that you could come to Stirling next week and you could help us at the secret site. You know, you could do that. There's nothing, no law to stop us. We're just going to have fun. You could do an hour, you could do a day, you could do a week. But you would be doing something vital and tangible and you would be making a contribution to that kind of shared passion, that understanding of the past. Um, I, I, and that's that's what I think archaeology can do. And, and indeed, the type of archaeology I do is directly aimed at doing that, um, getting the citizen getting the taxpayer to actively engage with their past. Um, I, 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 I can't think of anything that's more fun. Well, I can, but yeah, you know, <laughs> we've got to be polite. Yeah, I'm also, that's a great place to stop for a break. <laughs> and we're back. You listen to Modern Myth on the Archaeology Podcast Network. And in our final little segment, uh, I think that this is going to be a little bit more laid back and not as not as not as strong as what are the political ramifications of doing archaeology in society but rather let's 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 kind of like open things up a little bit more um i mean do you it it, it seems as if archaeology is a big part of your life um which is probably an understatement but um do you do you like engage in like archaeological media do you like watch tv series do you listen to podcasts um that's the real question there Uh, um what kind of stuff do you kind of absorb in terms of like heritage media or is that a 
no, no, I, I'm off my work now. I'm off archaeology. I, I've, I've done my reading today. I'm going to go and watch some cricket or football or whatever. What, what's it like for you? <laughs> um, I, 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 I would say that I have some kind of mental illness. Um, uh, and, and, and uh, yes, please don't take that the wrong way. I live, breathe, and drink archaeology. Um, I, t- I mean, I get up at six o'clock most days. I start work. That includes the weekend. Um, I just constantly work at it because it's my hobby. And again, I, I get into trouble occasionally with fellow professionals because I can't believe I'm lucky enough to be paid to do my hobby. Now, um, I'm also, <laughs> I don't really watch much archaeology on the TV because <laughs> I either think they've done it wrong or I'm not particularly interested in the period that they're covering or there's so much padding in in all of these things. So I like doing it. I like reading about it. I like writing it up. Uh, but I do it to extremes. So um, honestly, I can think of nothing more fun than than going outside and, and, and putting a hole in the ground in the sun. I don't like doing it in the rain. Um, I don't like doing it in the rain uh, and the cold too much. But um, honestly, I just, I, can't, I, I sometimes have to pinch myself. I can't believe how lucky I am to be doing the sort of thing that I'm doing. Um, I, and every day I wake up and it's another day and what am I going to do? And um, yeah, <laughs> although saying that, I mean, I do, you know, I like walking, music, all the kind of normal things that uh, normal people like to do. Yeah, of course, of course. Um, I actually, I would like to know, um, obviously, Stirling's known for a lot of its big history, big monumental history, like, you know, the Wallace Monument, Stirling Castle, stuff like that. Is there any kind of aspect of history, uh, I'll say physical history in Stirling, that's kind of maybe smaller and less well known, but still really important? Well, yes. I mean, there are lots of things like that um, about Stirling. It has this kind of ancient fabric. So there are places where, um, and, and again, the language here is, I have to be careful about it. Um, there are places where confessed acts of witchcraft took place and are still standing. So obviously, I don't believe in witchcraft. And I believe that any confession from a 17th century witch was either the product of torture or some kind of mental illness. These things stand. Um, and another thing, if, if you wander around Stirling, you, you see there's, there's lots of uh, the borough symbol, <clears throat> which is very important. Um, and the borough symbol is a bridge and it has a series of figures fighting over the bridge. And, and this, this, this is an ancient um, uh, borough symbol. It's recorded in 1296 on the Ragman Roll when uh, people from Dunbar had been fighting against Edward I, surrendered and recorded their allegiance with uh, the impression of the borough seal. Now, the, there is a Latin uh, phrase around that. I won't, I won't repeat it, but the translation, uh, and bear in mind, so we're talking about the, third, the late 13th century, but presumably we're talking about a symbol that is... 100, 200 years older, which might put it into the 11th century, perhaps. Um, The Latin motto refers to brute Scots. 
Now, <laughs> this is interesting. This means that in Sterling, at some point in whatever we're, we're going to talk about, the, 11, the, the, the 11th to 12th century, they didn't think of themselves as Scottish, that Scotland was to the north, that this was a different place. This had a different identity. And when we actually look at the periods under concern, so those those kind of early kings, the, the, the sons of Malcolm III and, and uh, Margaret, um, so Edgar, uh, Alexander, David, um, we find that their charters are in three different languages and, and they are referring to a, a clearly multi-ethnic kingdom. There is, and without going too technical, there is Alapa, the Gallic Kingdom of Scotland, north of the Forth. There is England, which is the Lothians, or the part of England that they are controlling. And then there's Strathclyde, which is British. So Scotland, as we understand it, is a thousand years old, less than a thousand years old. Um, and at that very dawn of history for Stirling, um, they were at that critical juncture, that, that crossroads, um, that linked the three disparate parts of mainland Scotland. And, of course, that's that's not talking about the Western Isles. That's not talking about the Northern Isles, all of which are probably under Norse control, still under Norse control at this point. So uh, this concept of, of Stirling as, as a kind of a monument, as a, as a symbolic place that, that links what becomes Scotland. And slightly further down the line, we find um, you know, Scotland's first national assizes system is founded in Stirling in 1180. There had never been a national court system. Um, so the birth of Scotland, the birth of, of the identity of this, what we consider um, to be our, our modern identity is, is very much tied to, um, to, uh, to Stirling. And it and it comes back to that geographical record. It's the only way north or south, um, and um, I, there is no other place in in Scotland where so much blood, so much treasure has been shed to control such a small place. Excellent. So, if people are interested in the work you've done, where's the best place that they can find out about it? Well, the, I suppose the, the Facebook page, Sterling Archaeology, is as good a start. Um, if people want to, to, to join in, then uh, if, they, if they put a note on, on that page, um, I have a, a weekly email that goes out that talks about lectures, books, free things, digs, walks, and uh, that gets sent out um, once a week, and, and any, everybody is welcome to join that. Um, and, it, and you just pick and choose what you want to come along. That's nice, nice. And obviously, uh, so the Anvil of Scottish History, uh, that's due to come out um, soon? That, that's out today, oh, actually. That's, that's out today. Oh, yeah. Uh, St. Andrew's oh, Day. Uh, my publisher thought it was a good marketing wheeze. And, and that is uh, a history of Scotland through a sterling lens. So uh, everything from um, the Ice Age through to the... Uh, to World War Two, actually. All right, okay. I mean, this episode will be going out after St. Andrew's Day, but I'm quite interested, right? So, obviously, I grew up in Northern Ireland, so St. Patrick's Day is very, very important, and everybody celebrates it. 
what's wrong with St. Andrew's Day? Like, why is everybody <laughs> like, oh, yeah, is it really that day again? I, what's, what, what's, what's the problem with St. Andrew's Day? Why does nobody celebrate it? Well, I, I, I think it's, uh, I think it's um, part, part of the problem uh, for me is, is that clearly St. Andrew, St. Andrew's relics are not in St. Andrew's. Um, we're just looking at uh, a, a piece of medieval spin. St. Patrick's real. I mean, St. Andrew is clearly real too, but St. St. Patrick is a real person with a real visceral connection to Ireland. Um, St. Andrew is, is, is a piece of, of medieval spin, of propaganda designed to elevate Scotland um, at the kind of European courts. Um, so I, I, one, of the, one of the things about medieval politics is, is that if you're not in the Bible or Roman sources, you're not really a real place. And um, there's always a struggle to, to justify small European nations on the Northwest and actually having saints is quite good. So St. Patrick's quite a good saint. St. Columba's a good saint. Um, but St. Andrew is one of the kind of, you know, one of the key players and, and closer to Christ. So therefore more important. So if his, his relics are here, then Scotland must be a real and important place. I mean, you find this in the de the Declaration of our Broth, um, which makes references to Roman literature, Roman history, but also contains this idea that um, we're founded by the daughter of a pharaoh. So we're an ancient warlike people um, uh, with, a, with a place at the table. Uh, and to be fair, this is merely in response to Edward I trying to justify that Scotland wasn't a real place and uh, had no right to uh, uh, an autonomous existence. So it's, it's, it's medieval propaganda, personally. Wow. Though I'm, I'm not quoting Stirling Council here, obviously. <laughs> okay. In your own capacity, in your own capacity. Well, yes. thank you very much for sitting down and letting us know uh, a little bit more about the heritage of uh, Stirling. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's a pleasure. been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.